writing and creative work is it's blue collar work. You know, the, the, the periods of time where it's just, you know, magical downloads of the universe and you have these big creative ideas, but where the rubber meets the road is where you sit down and you're actually typing, you know, you've already been clever and creative. Now it's time to do the work. So 90% of writing, at least for me is I've already been creative. I've already been clever. I've hopefully been able to wrestle it out onto some notes or some pages somewhere, but then it's clocking in and getting your coffee, typing things out, editing and editing and editing. Hello and welcome to Beyond Networking, the show where we help you build a sustainable career in an unpredictable world with the power of human connection. I'm your host, Brian Miller, and today's guest is Corey McComb. Corey is a writer based in San Diego, California. Through blog posts, essays, and the occasional short story, Corey examines the human condition and new ways of thinking. He also works with people in companies who need to tell their stories to launch products and spread ideas. And speaking of spreading ideas, that's how I came across Corey's work, his brand new TEDx talk. It's called Productivity is for Robots, Here's How to Stay Human. And it quickly became one of my all-time favorite TEDx talks. As someone who was both given a viral TEDx talk myself and coached dozens of speakers to spread their big idea on the red dot, I was absolutely blown away by Corey's content, structure, delivery, and, of course, his writing. In this conversation, we discuss many things, but it all centers on being a professional creative. How do you get ideas? How do you balance business with creativity? Why should you be a collector of stories? What did Corey do when he completely went blank in the middle of his TEDx talk? And how comedian John Mulaney changed his life. And of course, Corey shares his story of a chance encounter with lasting impact. It's a, it's a wild, wild tale. Plus, he gives a terrific piece of advice to young professionals trying to build their career in an increasingly unpredictable world. So be sure to stick around to the end of this slightly longer episode. It's worth it. Check the show notes for all the ways to connect with Corey, including his TEDx talk and his book by the same name, Productivity is for Robots. And now, please enjoy this lovely, lovely conversation with Corey McComb. All right, Corey, thank you so much for uh, making some time to be with us today. Appreciate it. How are you? I'm doing great, Brian. Thanks for having me on. I'm excited. Man, I'm pumped. And by the way, uh, for those listening, this will make no sense right off the bat. But behind you, that is not a Zoom background. That is actually a jungle behind you. What am I looking at? You're looking at a, a jungle. I'm in San Diego, California. And because I have so many Zoom calls these last few years, um, I decided to deck it out with some palm trees and some other some other plants, some lights. So if I'm getting on here at night, it's like a it's like a tropical musical festival back here. It's fantastic. I love it. It was such a different feel than like the the beige wall background with one photo that most people or or, or the bookshelf. Everybody in my space and the in the you know, in the space of authors and writers, everyone's got a bookshelf behind them. So cool. You've got a Gosh, you've got a nice serene space. It's so funny. There's so many different backgrounds. I I did a conference call with a woman and she was in this beautiful, beautiful house in, in Rancho Santa Fe and 
you know, we was a few of us on the call and we were complimenting and she was like, oh yeah, thank you. We, we moved in six months ago. And as the call went on, I kept seeing the, you know, like the, the giveaway, like it kept shifting. And I was like, wait a second, <laughs> that's not your house. <laughs> or if it is, that's a photo of your house. <laughs> and just like the slight shift where you're like, that's a green screen. Slight, that's that's slight shift. Not, yeah. yeah. There's just no matter how perfect. perfect you do it. Yeah, yeah, it, exactly. It's ec- too perfect. It, I My background of, uh, you know, was as a professional magician, which I was for, for, for a decade. And magicians talk about the too perfect theory. There's there's something in magic where if you do a trick and and it's too perfect, it tends to give away the secret because people go, well, it totally couldn't have been done anyway, so it must have just had it up his sleeve or whatever. Whereas if you do a trick that has a slight imperfection in it, it gives people an avenue that's wrong for their brain to run down and then it grounds it in reality. So it's so funny that you just said a green screen looks, when it looks too perfect, that's the giveaway. Oh man, <laughs> and you know, it's so true in just yeah. writing and speaking as well. I can We can talk about that. I'm sure we'll get there for the TED Talk, you know, doing something yeah. wrong. <laughs> yeah, we should definitely talk about that. Let's let's real quick though. What are you working on like this week? Like what's on your plate right now? This week I'm working on short stories. So my new book is going to be a, a collection of short stories. So I'm getting back in that. I'm in a first draft right now which involves a lot of wandering around the house and cursing and you know periods of self-doubt and weeping but you know once the first draft gets out things get a little bit easier so i've written five short stories this year and i wanted to write i told myself i'd have eight done by the end of 2021 um you know i whenever i start a book i always tell myself it's going to take you know one period of time and it always takes much longer i think that's part of my creative process is lying to myself (laughs) about how long things will take. Um, but there, there's a lot going on. You know, I have a business as well. So I, you know, I have my business life and I have my writing life. I've got a wife and we're actually going to be moving out of San Diego. So there's a lot of moving pieces right now, but yeah. I've been trying to keep my head on straight and just make sure that I do the writing blocks in the morning and uh, and get that out. So I've got some writing, I've got some creative momentum going right now, Brian, and it feels really good. That. That's a, you know, do you call that flow? I, I like momentum. Momen- I, a lot of people talk about flow. Momentum feels more natural to me when I get into a space where I'm like, all right, we got this. We're picking up speed. I can keep going now. Yes, exactly. Yeah. yeah, momentum is a better word. You know, flow, I think about when I'm kind of in the moment and time seems to be invisible and you're and you're floating above it all. Those moments are few and far in between and you can't really wait yeah. for them. Yeah. So you've got these these two different lives. You've got your professional life, your business life, and and your your uh, writer creative life. Now, what what is this this business life? Can you give us the quick version of what what's this other thing that competes for your attention? Yeah, absolutely. So it's it's digital marketing, and I help companies and founders launch products. You know, spe- uh, specifically on Kickstarter and Indiegogo. So it's really cool. I'm kind of like approach it almost like a uh, like a music producer where I'm working with other creatives that have their own vision of product and, you know, what do they want to present to the world? What is their creation? And I'm able to kind of step in at the beginning stage. And, you know, there's a technical aspect where I'm running 
advertising campaigns to really test and improve upon the overall messaging and direction. But it's really it's really nice because I can come in and I don't have to have my own creative agenda. The record producer analogy works because I'm coming in, seeing what someone has and just helping them tweak and get their creations right for the world. So I'm really helping companies launch products and that's the money-making venture. You know, it like uses the other part of my brain. I'm able to not just be the lone writer hunched over the keyboard all day wrestling with my own ideas. Um, So it's like um, they both compete with each other and there's, you know, they, um, I resent the business when I'm not writing and (laughs) when the writing doesn't make as much money as I want, I resent that. And that's why I have the business. So it's interesting. I talk to a lot of different people that, um, you know, there's that saying, and I think about this all the time, like the man who chases two rabbits catches none. Mm. But I like chasing two rabbits and <laughs> I would probably have more books written by now if I didn't have the business, but my life would I, look a little different. So I'm, I'm with you on the rabbits. First of all, using a rabbit analogy with a magician was a good touch, but also, <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, it's interesting about the chasing different rabbits. Cause I, I would have agreed with your assertion there a second ago where you said I I probably would get more done or whatever if I was only chasing one rabbit at a time kind of a thing. I would have agreed with that right up until a couple years ago when this book that I feel like I've mentioned at least three times this season of the podcast alone. It's amazing how there tend to just be themes in time where uh, things keep coming up with lots of different people. Um, This book by David Epstein, Range, uh, which is about why generalists triumph in a specialized world that we assume it's the people like the athletes like Michael Jordan or Tiger Woods, the, uh, the you know, uh, the Williams sisters, where it, they were just trained from the time they were born and they did one thing and one thing only all their lives and then they became great. We think that's how people become great. But those are actually the far exceptions that most of the top performers in almost every field are people who specialized way later in life and actually played all around with lots of different ideas. If they're an athlete, they played lots of different sports. If they're a computer scientist, maybe they tried to be an engineer first and they tried to be a a painter and then they tried to be a whatever. And then they found their thing. And it's because they did so many different things and had so many different experiences. They didn't master anything, but but when they find the thing they decide to specialize in, now they can pull in insights from so many different places and come up with creative solutions that people who only ever specialized usually can't see. So I I would have agreed with you by instinct until I read that book and it totally changed how I think about uh, things like that. That's so true. I loved Range. Range is like my favorite book of 2019. Okay, so you did read Range. I couldn't I couldn't oh, I read did. your face if you if you had read it or not. So it was good. it was so good. I love nonfiction books that just validate the way you've been living already. <laughs> <laughs> I was reading that book I said, yes. oh that's kind of like me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it fits with being a writer so well because everything becomes material and you can't be a writer if you're just sitting around, just if you're not filling the well with other experiences from other people's walks of life or, you know, having different careers and different experiences, it's all going to just come out so boring. So you know, having a range yeah. and having these two lives, it, it definitely probably does, does feed into, you know, feed into each other. And, um, 
You know, it's so funny because I, I was listening to your podcast, listened to a few episodes, and I love that you were asking the question at the beginning, you know, when you're at a cocktail party, what is it that you tell people that you do? And I've been to so many cocktail parties the last 30 days, Brian, and so many people have been asking me. And I didn't, I, I wasn't, I used to love to talk about myself, but as I've become, as I write more and more, maybe it's just getting older, that I always say like, what is going to get the focus off me the fastest? Because when you tell people <laughs> you're a writer, you know, you say you're a writer, the next question is always the same. Well, what have you written? You know, that's really the only question that really matters, right? But I always just say digital marketing, because it's kind of, it's not that fascinating. And it usually puts the onus back on the person asking. And my wife was making fun of me on the drive home from the New Year's party because I just, for whatever reason, was so tight-lipped about my writing and my book and all these other things that I'm working on. And I told her, I said, I'm just, I'm with me all day. <laughs> you know, like <laughs> I'm, and, and writing and having range and having these other conversations, I just can't wait at this point to hear what other people are working on, what other people are doing so that I can, um, basically for selfish reasons to steal material. <laughs> well, people have the most interesting stories, and I feel like we rarely find out about all these interesting stories because we don't we don't think to ask, especially strangers. I think people get really nervous about asking strangers like personal questions, questions that feel personal, but they're people like talking about themselves. Like most people, if if you show genuine interest, are really excited for someone to show genuine interest in them because most people never get that experience. It's so interesting that you try to get the uh, the conversation off of yourself, though, as quickly as possible, especially with doing something <laughs> as interesting and as varied as what you do. Do people ever try to come back at you and be like, yeah, but but what do you but what do you do? What have you written? Tell me about tell me about your marketing. Yeah, yeah, they do. And definitely more more so with the writing. And I think that that comes down to when you say you're a writer or a creative, then it's those follow up questions. And it depends on who's asking and what kind of mood you're in, I guess. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's it is, you know, as a writer, and I'm writing fiction this this year, like I mentioned, and, you know, in nonfiction, you can usually start with a problem that is very apparent to you or to many people, and you can set out to solve that problem with writing. Maybe it's a problem that was plaguing you. Like when I wrote my first book, Productivity is for Robots, there was a problem haunting me, and I looked around and it was haunting other people as well, so I set out to solve it for myself and others. Fiction, you have to invent problems and solutions. It's way more. You have to invent you have to invent catastrophes, awkward moments, um, embarrassing stories. So, you know, this last year starting to write fiction, it has opened my eyes to the notion that I can't just think about myself anymore. I really do have to get under the skin of other people and start collecting these esoteric uh, conundrums that other people are waiting to spill the beans on. You know, being a collector of stories is such a valuable skill, though, and I think that more people in more fields, especially people who don't think of themselves as creative people, would benefit from being a collector of stories uh, because it, it's one of those things where 
if you really pay attention and you remember, and I, 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 I jot down notes, I use like, okay, I just heard someone say that. And then I, and then they, they walk away and I jot down a note about that, whatever I can remember the bullet points. And then I look back at those notes a couple of times a week, like every week scrolling. Cause first I write a weekly blog. I need content. I speak for a living. I need content. But m- even if you don't do any of those creative things, you can be in any conversation with somebody. And I think a lot of people get stuck in conversations because they don't know what to say next. They don't know what question to ask next. They just, they, especially people who really want to connect more with other humans, but just don't know what to say. It's not that they don't want to, they just don't know what to say. And if you collect stories, you kind of always have something to say because if you have this bag of 10, 20, 40 stories in rattling around your head at any given time, someone says something and you can go, you know, that's interesting. I mean, you've done this in this conversation multiple times already. You know, that's interesting. This thing happened to me or I met this person in Arizona once or this thing. Ha- and then you just tell someone a story and it sparks a new idea and we get further into the conversation. Yes. Uh, do you do you formalize like when you collect stories, do you write them down, jot your notes or are you less less formal about that? Oh, I, I jot them all down. And, you know, for my first book, I knew that the structure was going to be, you know, there was going to be topics and then stories involved. And I would often be reading and hear a good story and say, oh, that story would be perfect. This was more like reading stories out of other books, you know, like biographies and things like that, mm-hmm. um, or listening to them on podcasts. So that was more like media stories that where I'd have a topic I want to write about. And I would write down a list of all these different stories and all these topics that I wanted to write about. And I would crisscross on the page, like this could be good for this, this could be good for that. And then there'd be other topics that I wanted to write about. And I was kind of afraid of putting too much of myself into the book. I had a little bit of insecurity, you know, enough of me kind of ended up in the final draft. But initially when I really was getting the courage to start the book, I didn't want to put myself in as a main character, and I really wanted to have these lessons be attached to historical figures or people that were a little bit more um, successful. So, what 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 was what was making you nervous about putting yourself into the book? I just didn't think that anyone would really care. I don't think I knew how to write about myself quite yet, and. You know, in writing, you always do want to build authority. And I've learned that there's other ways to build authority, um, you know, as you write, depending on what genre you're writing. But I felt that it was easier to get a point across and to share the wisdom that I've gleaned through the lens of other people. You know, it's much easier for me to write a chapter where Theodore Roosevelt was the main character and I was able to kind of attach these lifelong principles um, and insights to his story rather than talking about myself. Mm. Yeah, that, that makes sense. We should talk about, uh, the TEDx at this point, because we're talking about the book that inspired the talk, right? Book came first, TEDx came second. Yeah. Okay. So first question, uh, did you get invited or did you apply? Is this something you were trying to do or did you get pulled in? I got invited to apply. Yeah, you got invited on my, to apply. <laughs> yeah, someone on my Substack. <laughs> yeah, someone on my Substack uh, subscriber reached out, and he and he works for TEDx Temecula on the board, and he said, "I think that you would be a good fit potentially for this year." So I did the application, the video. A few weeks went by. 
then they invited me to audition. And then I auditioned, a few more weeks went by, and they said, all right, we're going to put you through the speaker training and, and help you out. And then it was the real deal. So it was great. It's it's a process. People don't realize what a process it is. Uh, and and I, I say this because so outside of my my day job as a speaker, a writer on human connection and, you know, running workshops and, and all that, you know, I, I, I coach, I train TEDx speakers. That's that's a huge part of my life. And a lot of people, when they reach out to me and we do a, a first call where they're thinking about working with me or working with a coach, whether it's me or not, and a lot of them have this idea like, yeah, I've got this this awesome idea and it's going to be great. And it's perfect for TEDx and I'm going to apply and it's I'm going to do a TEDx talk in like three months. And I'm like, no, you're not. <laughs> this is not going to go the way you think it's going to go, uh, because whatever idea you think you have is not as clear as you think it is. Uh, and once you make it clearer, it's not as clear as you think it is. Uh, and they've seen it all. And I, I said to somebody recently, you know, I don't really care what you've done. TEDx will probably be one of, if not the hardest things you ever do in your life. It is crazy. How how was that experience for you? Is that lining up for you? Oh, 100%. It was such a process. It was so time consuming and so rewarding. And it was extremely difficult right through the entire thing. And I, you know, I went fully blank up there. There was, there was a, I, I practiced Brian. I had everything memorized and, you know, being a writer, I had a huge advantage because there was six other speakers and we would all meet once a week and help each other out. And I came out of the gates with all the material, you know, I've already slaved over these words, you know, I already know and then eventually the coaches said, you know what, you really just sound like you're reciting good writing. You're not really giving a speech. And yeah. that was that was the hard part is to kind of unwind, tone down some of the <laughs> mm -hmm. some of the poetic phrases and turn it into an actual conversation. So it was totally out of my comfort zone. And by the time, you know, I used to pace the house, the backyard, the beach, I would draw the little circle in the sand <laughs> and present to the seagulls. <laughs> and I had it memorized. Oh, I had it so memorized word for word, my uptones and downtones. I worked with a, you know, with one of the coaches. She was fantastic. She was a linguistics professor and she taught me so much. And she would take my speech and she would even highlight with different colors, like, here's where you want to go up. Here's where you want to slow down the word. Mm -hmm. So it got so granular and it was to the point where, it felt unnatural for a little while, and then I was able to make it feel so much more natural. And I was so comfortable and memorized that they actually asked me the day before, hey, we want you to keynote. We want you to go last. And I was like, oh, this is going to be great. <laughs> and everyone else did, did so, so good. And I got up there, and I started really strong. Um, I was right on, right on beat. And then after like the first minute and a half or so, there's a, I, I wrote about this on my Substack. There's this, in, in, in German, they don't call it stage fright. They call it uh, Lampenfieber, which is light fever. And I heard that word when I was telling the story to someone and they, and they told me that light fever term. I said, that's what happened to me. The lights just came down and the pulsing started in my ear and I just completely went blank. Way too long to just be a dramatic pause. And the Ted 
that the video editors told me later that it was about an eight seconds of, of pain. <laughs> but luckily, like they, they told, that's what, that's what they said. It felt like a lifetime. And every, you get off stage and everyone says, oh, you hardly even noticed it. Luckily, I did get right back on track. Like they, like they tell you, say, hey, if you lose your place, all you have to do is be quiet, put your head down, pick your head up, and just pretend like nothing happened. So I was able to do that. Yeah. Um, but I'm so, man, just you know, real quick, I'm so glad you said that because I, this is one of the biggest questions that comes up when I get close. And like right now, as we're talking, I have two speakers giving their talks in about two weeks at two different conferences. And they've been working for six months with me, eight months leading up to this. And we're like the crunch time. And so these are the kind of things coming up for them. What, what do I do if I go blank after all this work, you know? And the answer is what you just said, which is you stare at the ground, you look contemplative, you say nothing, you don't say, um, you don't try to find it. You just let it come to you. And whatever the next line comes to you is, that's the next line that comes out of your mouth. And you just keep going from there because also people just, just like your first piano teacher, if you ever took piano lessons, tells you at the recital, like if you screw up, don't make a face. The audience doesn't know what the song is supposed to sound like, even though you're playing happy birthday, right? Like, you know, this is exactly the same thing. They don't know the next line in your speech. They don't know what's coming next. So I'm thrilled to hear that you made it through that. And by the way, that's why I laughed when you said eight seconds. There's like a six, maybe seven second pause in my TEDx talk that no one has ever commented on ever. Three and a half million people. No one's ever commented. And it was me going blank because I saw a kid. It was at a high school a high school student was rocking in his chair and I saw he was going to fall off his chair. I saw it coming and, and, and I'm just doing my speech and trying to ignore it. Cause you know, the cameras aren't on that. It's not going to matter on YouTube. And he falls off his chair, crash. Everyone around him turns and looks at him. There's chaos right there, 20 feet from me that the cameras can't see. And I realize as I see it, that I'm still talking, I'm finishing a sentence, but I'm so memorized. I can't remember anymore. I, I just, I was on autopilot. But then I stopped that sentence and I couldn't remember what sentence I had just said. So I didn't know what the next one was. And I stood there for, like you said, it literally felt like a year, right? Sweating and going, I can't believe this is happening. It turns out it was about six or seven seconds and it was left in. They didn't edit it out. It was left in. No one has ever, ever said a word. No one noticed but me. Wow. So. Man, I, you know, I could feel the collective panic and, you know, what we were talking about earlier, whereas you see something wrong, I'll tell you, if I didn't have anyone's attention before I forgot where I was, I certainly had everyone's attention now. And it was just like, I felt the mere neurons of the front row just feeding off of me. They were like, oh, please don't make us watch you fall. There was just such a collective panic oh, no. in, the, in the, in the air. It's like. And it was really engaging, though. It's kind of like, you know, no one wants to see the tightrope walker fall, but we all just cherish that gust of wind when it comes through. Just, oh, <laughs> what's going to happen? Please, please, please remember. And I could just feel the panic in everybody. And it was a very nice shared moment. Of course, in my head, even when I pick back up, I'm, I'm, I'm playing this story in my head of like, well, I just ruined my I'm dead on arrival because this is the first public talk I've ever given. I had never done wow, any man. other public speaking. So I kind of skipped the line a little bit and got to do my very first public talk on the TED stage. And I said, Oh, I just, 
I just blew it on my very first one. Um, but yeah, well, you know, if you want to get someone's attention, do something wrong, right? <laughs> Listen, you you didn't blow it because it's it's really uh, an exceptional talk. It, it's a wonderful talk, and and I want to talk about the talk itself now okay. because we were talking we were talking about your first book, uh, not your first book, your your um your previous book, uh, Productivity is for Robots, which is what inspired this talk. And this, the TEDx talk is called Productivities for Robots. Here's how to stay human, right? Is that the the full title of the talk? Yeah, yeah, it is. So we got to start with John Mulaney. Uh, for those listening to this and have never seen your talk, they're going to go watch it. It's in the show notes, et cetera, et cetera. They already heard me introduce it at the beginning. But if they haven't heard it, they never heard of you, they have no idea. John Mulaney is one of my all-time favorite comedians. My wife and I love him to pieces. And this entire thing, this monumental shift in your life, somehow started because of a joke John Mulaney told on SNL. Is that right? That's right. That's right. All right. What happened? Exactly (laughs) right. What happened? Well, I had been toying with this idea about our relationship with productivity because at the beginning of 2018, I did find myself in a deep hole of just disconnect and burnout. I was really chasing a lot of rabbits. Um, I was working for an agency full-time remote and I was really just burning myself out because I was working too much. I was telling myself I wanted to be a writer. I wasn't showing up for myself. You know, that, that constant creative battle where you want to do something and you're not and the guilt piles up. And I was spread thin, yes, but it was really more how I was kind of like relating to the work. And I wanted to get back to, I had this idea about, you know, basically is, you know, for every step technology takes toward becoming more human in behavior, humans take a step to meet it halfway. We're really competing with robots. I had fallen into this like overly optimization, productivity at all costs kind of hedonic treadmill that that many entrepreneurs find themselves in. And it was just weighing on me so much. So I kind of had this, and I'd written a few articles on Medium about this, and I really wanted to write a book. And I had all these kind of like pieces of an idea and these articles swirling around me. And then then I was watching Saturday Night Live and John Mulaney was hosting, and he made that, made that comment, that joke about, you know, humans and robots basically. And that was the moment that was like the the burning bush in the distance that said, let's walk this way. And I wrote that down in my phone, took note of it. And that's really how I was able, that was the thread that I could pull that really pulled all the ideas and the thesis for the book together and kind of gave me this creative epiphany of where this might go. And for the record, for the listener, who's not familiar with the joke, the joke is basically along the lines of we have you ever noticed that you spend all day these days proving to robots that you're not a robot, right? Clicking, exactly. I'm not a robot, where you're convincing a robot that I'm a human and let me let me see the thing I already, let me see my own stuff. <laughs> yeah, I promise exactly. I'm not like you, is what you're saying to a robot. Um, he nails it. Yeah. And he's the first he, line in the book. Yeah, it's it's perfect. Uh, it, it's perfect. So, so... Okay, so we kind of know what your life looked like when you had that epiphany. You were burning out at an agency. Um, so you did not have your own business yet at that time? Correct. Okay. I'm so still, still working at an agency. Right. So so then what was, you know, what was the line that happened? How how 
quickly, like when, when we tell these stories, when we when we give speeches, we tend to compress time just like we do when we write fiction and things or even when we write nonfiction. Well, you know, was it like next week I quit my job and discovered I can live like a human again? Or, or, or what was the process that that you took at that point? Oh, yeah, definitely not. You know, I I started writing the book and, you know, burnout, the more that I've written about and focused on burnout, it's it's easy to believe that burnout stems from doing too much. But in my experience and talking to a lot of people, when you really get down to it, burnout typically stems from neglecting the one or two things that you know you should be doing, but just aren't. And for me, that was creativity. So I wasn't scratching my creative itch by writing or living up to these this um this creative idea that i've that i've had because i've knew from years before how great it felt to be creative how satisfying it was to write how to share work and when i stopped doing it because of too much business and too many other things happening in life that's what really dried me out and 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 made me feel um just dark and i was not on the path anymore so the, the years that it took me to write the book, I was still working at the agency, but the fact that I was waking up every morning, taking some responsibility for my creative passion and actually getting things done, you know, building that momentum, that made things so much easier. And I was finally like working towards something and it kind of softened, softened the, uh, the edge there. Um, eventually though, I was able to, you know, start my own business and create a life. You know, it came down to me, you know, I would say you start with a question, you know, how do you want your days to look? How do you want your days to feel? And you can kind of start walking that road and and figuring things out and turning different screws. And for me, I was very lucky to be in a situation where I could eventually start my own business and build it in such a way that makes it really easy to, to write all day if I, if I feel so inspired. I love that you said a minute ago, you said that you took responsibility for your own creativity, for your own creative practice. I think that word responsibility doesn't get used as often as it should be used when people are dealing with burnout and things like you're talking about. We hear a lot about, and and I think people are right, that there we need to reinvent the way that, especially in America and some other, certain other countries, our, 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 the way that we work and the what's expected of workers. And we obviously need to reinvent that stuff. But at the end of the day, you're responsible for your own life. And if you want to scratch a creative itch, that's for you to decide to do and to figure out how to do that for yourself. You can you can choose to do that. You know, one, one of the one of the things I think about a lot is um uh, so a, a hero and mentor of mine, Seth Godin, he wrote a book called The Practice, um, which came out, uh, I think it was just last year, the year before. It's his latest book. And it's, call, it's called The Practice, Shipping Creative Work. And his whole point in, in the book is essentially this, that we, we're, not, um, we're not creative because we, uh, we don't become creative because we say we're creative, Right. We're creators because we do creative work, that the doing comes first, right? That you have to, you can choose to show up as a creative person. And I I don't, this whole idea, people get stuck, I think, a lot thinking that 
that that creativity is some other type of thing that it's not like the work I do at my job. It's some other magical, mysterious thing. It's like, no, creative work is, is work. It's just a different type of work. And you can choose to do that work and you can choose to be a creator. So it sounds like you decided to make that choice. I did. And you know, it's like the lessons in the book I was learning in real time. So when we talk about mm-hmm. my journey kind of out of burnout, I was I had these things haunting me and these lessons that I wanted to talk about. And I was researching these stories and really writing about them every day and internalizing them helped so much. I mean, I was kind of finding my way out as I wrote the book. So yeah. and and you know, to your point, and I love Seth Godin, I'll, I'll say really quickly, there was a moment when my book came out. Yeah, his book had been out for a little while, but I had this, you know, Amazon ranking. There was like one hour where I was like right next to his book. I've got a screenshot of it. It was like one of my best moments of the book launch. I've got a screenshot of my book. You know, he's like number six and I'm like number seven on some, That's you know, awesome. uh, Amazon genre. But anyways. That's awesome. Um, That's so funny. You know, I tell people this all the time that writing and creative work is, it's blue collar work. You know, mm-hmm. the, the the periods of time where it's just, you know, magical downloads of the universe and you have these big creative ideas. I mean, ideas come to me, you know, fully formed or at least halfway formed in an instant, you know, on a long walk. And that's really great and that's creative, but where the rubber meets the road is where you sit down and you're actually typing. You know, you've already been clever and creative. Now it's time to do the work. Um, so 90% of writing, at least for me is I've already been creative. I've already been clever. I've hopefully been able to wrestle it out onto some notes or some pages somewhere, but then it's clocking in and getting your coffee, typing things out, editing and editing and editing and, and all that. Yeah. I like that about it. And, and you mentioned that some ideas come to you like, oh, they hit you halfway or fully formed when you're on a walk, but people forget to go on walks. Creative people forget to take that. That's part of the process that, that, that that's not some meandering, um, diversion that, that for me, I have to create time to play guitar because I love guitar and I went to school for music and it's a passion of mine and I don't do it professionally. It's not part of my work and I'm a busy working professional entrepreneur guy. And so that's the thing that would get left out if I didn't pay any attention, if I didn't take responsibility, I would always get my work done, but I'd forget to play guitar. But it's because I take time to play guitar. I take time to go on a walk. That's when creative, I give myself a chance for creative ideas to hit me. And I have the scheduled time to be physically typing, doing the work. I think, right? You need both of those things. Yeah, and it's a discipline. And the good thing, and one of the things that I've learned, now that I've written a book, it, I feel so much better about just knowing that even when I get off the path, you know, if you haven't written for a few weeks or you look down at your, your guitar fingers and your calluses are gone, all you got to do is just pick up that guitar. And the more reps you get falling off the path and getting back on, the more you know that it's always there for you. And, yeah. you know, there'll be weeks where my business is just requiring me, life is just requiring me to not write as much as I want to. And I can start to feel a little squirrely, <laughs> but mm. you know, you do it enough and you just realize that, Hey, this is the antidote. It's there for you. You just got to get back on the path and you can, you can make up for the, make up for the time. 
So before we get to the kind of big question I ask everybody, let's let's come right back to the heart and soul of the TEDx talk itself, because there's it, it's it's a wonderful. I don't want to rehash the talk. It drives me crazy when I'm a guest on people's podcasts and they ask me to rehash the talk that's right there on YouTube for anybody to watch. So I don't want to rehash it. But there's one thing that you said in it that I'd like to get you to expand upon, which is your third strategy for how people can reclaim humanity is to waste more time. And this feels very related to what we were just talking about, about going on walks. For me, playing guitar could easily be seen as a waste of time in a world where I don't make a living playing guitar and I've got a lot of professional commitments. Why should people waste time? And more importantly, when you tell someone to waste time, they most people in modern working world would freak out. What is it about wasting time that makes people feel so uncomfortable? Oh, well, it's the rah-rah of productivity. You know, it's the, it's the hustle and grind uh, dogma that's out there. Whereas if you're not, you know, if you're not hustling, you're, you're falling behind. Social media makes it a little bit worse, I think. You know, I, I, I say that, you know, social media is kind of the conveyor belt of, of busy work where people want to be, <laughs> that's good, you yeah. know, you're it's 24-7, <laughs> thing, things going on. But wasting time is important because... Well, there's a few different reasons, you know, for one, and I say this in the talk is that busyness is often just laziness in a collared shirt, right? <laughs> we often feel like we're being busy when we're really just doing emotional avoidance, right? It's like, we can always find things to do like, oh, I'm staying busy, staying busy, but there's usually something that you know, you need to be doing that you're just kind of like neglecting, like, I need to clean my office one more time before I write that chapter, right? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Polish the shoes in the corner. Um, But there's just not not to interrupt you, but well, to interrupt you, obviously, because I just did. But one of the ways I think people do a lot um, uh, where they do, they feel like they're being productive when really they're wasting time is taking another online course, watching another YouTube tutorial, reading another book that when they've already read five books or watched five videos on that, uh, I call those learning loops where you get stuck because learning is really fun for some of us. A lot of us, we find learning fun. But then at some point, you just have to stop learning and start doing. Oh, <laughs> so I've fallen into to that trap myself. A hundred percent. And, you know, there's something that happens to our brains to, our, you know, this is more of the conscious mind versus the subconscious mind. And there's been a lot of brilliant psychologists who've written about this where, you know, when we're stuck in our logical part of our brain, when we're really into that problem solving, you know, the subconscious mind isn't free to to solve some of the bigger problems and issues. And, you know, playing guitar, going on walks, doing things that might look like wasting time, it's not really like we're not doing anything because it's when that part of the brain relaxes that the subconscious can kind of come alive and can run off leash. You know, it's like when you have the epiphanies in the shower or when you're yeah. doing something else that the subconscious all of a sudden snaps into place and it can give you those creative epiphanies. So I really believe that loosening, you know, you're not going to have your best ideas if you're just locked and loaded on task execution day after day. You know, if you're staring down the car- the, the barrel of a loaded calendar, you're it's always going to be in that mode. Everything is going to be scheduled out. You're just going to be in that problem solution mode too much where I really believe, and there is a lot of you know neuroscience to back it up, that when you let go 
and you just are really letting your mind run off leash and free that some of those best ideas are just going to come about and and really you know materialize and then go to your conscious mind so you can think about them um yeah and another good reason to waste time is that you know we're only here so long (laughs) you know it's okay it's funny because it's like i like to i'm still a personal development writer at the end of the day you know this book is Mm -hmm. You know, I don't like to pigeonhole it as a genre, but it's a self-help book. You know, if you had to yeah, say, it's like what a, I write, it's what that, you that, write. That, yeah, exactly. And, yeah. and so easy to like say things and then say, oh, well, this is why, because it's going to get you this. It's going to, oh, you want your best ideas? You want the million dollar idea? Well, okay. maybe you should try doing nothing. And as, and as the years have gone by, I'm kind of like, well, maybe doing nothing doesn't do anything, but that's okay too. <laughs> mm. yeah, yeah. You know, it's like serendipity is hard to come by when you're, hyper focused on your agenda you know when you're hyper focused on your schedule and staying busy it it doesn't leave a lot of room for serendipity and in my life you know the 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 best moments the things that have come to me aren't things that i plan for in my calendar they're the serendipitous moments that put me on a on a new path so so speaking of uh, serendipity because you 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 steered us perfectly into the big question here i like to ask everybody uh, about a chance encounter you had at some point in your life or career that some unexpected conversation, whether you stayed in touch with that person or it only lasted two minutes and never saw them again, something that had a, a big impact on you or your life or your career. Um, do you have a story like that? I do. I do. And it was, you know, like I said, I've been listening to your podcast and I knew this question was coming. And one of my greatest skills in life has always been attracting good people somehow. I don't take credit for it. I think it's just more of a, just a a, a lucky horseshoe that I was born with because Uh most of the good things in my life have come from other people and having them drop into my lap in different ways. But, you know, I grew up playing in punk rock bands and (laughs) I, yeah, so I'm a guitar player. I was in you know, there's, there's stuff about this in the book. Um, but I, all through high school, I played in punk rock bands and did tours and a lot of cool stuff. And then I left that behind and then really got focused in business. You know, I was doing the, the nine to five, I was climbing the corporate ladder. This was in San Diego. So years and years had gone by since I played any music and I was dating a girl. I just moved to San Diego and our relationship was kind of coming to like a natural close and I was working for this company in San Diego that was going to be moving offices to Las Vegas. And they really wanted me to move to Las Vegas and keep climbing the corporate ladder. And I was well-liked and, and well-paid and I was young and I felt good. You know, I was kind of on this path and I'd left my music and creative pursuits kind of behind me. And this girl I was dating, one of her good friends had a musician boyfriend that she, they had been they've been trying to set us up like on a little mandate. They th- I think <laughs> I think they'll get along, and I'm of course like I don't want to I don't want to meet your girlfriend's friend. Come on, but anyways, we we ended up all the four of us having dinner together, getting getting sushi, and you know his name is Walter, and you know Walter and I of course just hit it off at dinner. It was a total chance encounter. Hit his girlfriend, me and my girlfriend. And he is in a band, a local San Diego band, and they were getting rid of a guitar player or he was moving away. And he's and 
And he was really just asking me, he's like, hey, you play guitar, like, why don't you come to a show and see if you'd want to like fit into this band? Like, we really need someone. And I was like, no, no, I'm not trying to be in a band. I'm also moving to Las Vegas in a few months because uh, that was my plan. Um, but, but, you know, dinner ended and we kept in contact and then they invited us to a show and then I went to the show and I just loved the music and I ended up, and then he kind of talked me into joining the band, even though I was only going to be here for a few months. And, you know, my girlfriend and I broke up, his girlfriend and his, they broke up. So it was like, we kind of found each other. It's like a vibe of the ladies, joined a band, <laughs> played music. And, you know, because that girl had brought me to San Diego in the first place, you know, when we broke up, you know, she took her friends with her. I didn't really have a social life outside of work. And that was coming to an end. And it was just so, such a big turning point in my life where I joined this band and we really, you know, the other guys in the band, we all became brothers as, as musicians do. And we had so much fun for the next, I think it was like six months playing shows and meeting new people. And I just had really, I didn't even realize how much of this creative life that I had buried you know, that I had forgotten about. I, I never told myself, I wasn't like in the corporate world wishing I was doing something else. I just completely blocked that part of my life out. And it wasn't until I started playing music again and spending time with creatives and, and different artists and expressing myself that I said, hey, this feels familiar. This is what I used to love. And in the end, the company said, here's your ticket to Las Vegas. And I said, ooh, I'm gonna have to pass. I found something else. And that was a chance encounter that really just pushed my life in a completely different direction. That's what got me to start writing. That's what got me to really embrace this um, artistic life and get back to what's important. So if that hadn't happened, you know, I would probably be some, some like CEO in a Las Vegas company or something or, or not. Or a gambling addict. I don't know. <laughs> or a gambling addict. Those those are the two things that you might those have. Those are been. the two options. Yeah. So I, yeah. I. It's so funny because you know I. I had a hard time. You thinking still in of touch? An answer with, to that with question. Him with them? Yeah. Yeah. I am. We don't. I don't play in the band anymore. But he texted sure. me while I was thinking about this question about something else, <laughs> and I said, "Oh, you you'll you'll do just fine for this answer because you really did <laughs> change my my path in life." Wow. It's so wild how we, we just have no idea um, the different paths that could unfold uh, ahead of us. You know, that that old uh, Steve Jobs quote, you only notice you only you can only connect the dots looking backwards. You know, that that kind of a thing. Mm -hmm. It's it's, um, you know, who, who could have predicted that a, uh, 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 jamming out with a punk rock in a punk rock band with your girlfriend's friends boyfriend it I, basically led to the TEDx talk all those years later. Yes, it really did. <laughs> Isn't that weird? <laughs> it's so it's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. And so, so it's interesting because you, you mentioned luck too, kind of it's like serendipity and luck. And, and you said that you kind of have a, a lucky horseshoe. So obviously you believe in luck. Uh, do you, do you believe it's possible to take control, not take control, I guess, but to, to, to be more lucky on purpose, to to increase your odds of being lucky in life in, in whatever way. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, if opp opportunity knocks, but you got to be the right person to open the door, you got to prepare yourself. I, I fully believe that. 
Um, and I'm sure that there's like, you can only connect the dots backwards. I only can guess how many opportunities and things that I've missed out on because I wasn't the right person at the right time. Um, mm. You know, you, you, you definitely, yeah. it depends on what you're talking about, but you know, to cre- for creative ideas or as a writer, you know, there might be ideas that I have that I think are really funny or really interesting, but I just know I'm not the right person to write it. And I'll try and give it to somebody else because I don't have the background or the patience or I'm working on something else. So, you know, it, it really is like right time at the right place. And you just hope that you have the skills or the connections or the courage to be able to take advantage of certain things when they come along. There's a there's a great quote from Livingston Taylor. He's the younger brother of James Taylor, um, also a guitarist and singer songwriter. Mm. And as far as I'm concerned, far superior. No disrespect to James, uh, he doesn't care. Um, so <laughs> Livingston, he's I can't imagine he cares. Can you imagine if he was one of the people that listens to this podcast? He's like, hey, <laughs> just like jogging with his earbuds in. Uh, so gonna Livingston. Leave a <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna get my first one star review. Um, what a jerk! Um, where was I? Oh, uh, Livingston Taylor. He he said once, "It's sad to be ready and not be called, but it's tragic to be called, right, and not be ready." Oh, and that is and it's, that is perfect. Yeah, yeah, and it really it really is tragic to to because I've had that happen in my career where there was an opportunity presented to me and I was just like this I don't have the skills to do this. I wish I could say yes to this. It happened to me just 6 months ago. Um I was given an opportunity of a lifetime and it's one that 2 years ago I could have done and 2 years from now I could have done but I wasn't in the place to do it when it showed up. And it was literally like a once in a lifetime opportunity. And I just, I I actually tried to take it on. I tried to take on this project. And after about three weeks, I went back to the person um, and I said, it was a volunteer project, wasn't paid or anything, but I, I, it was a dream project. And I went back to them and I said, I can't do this right now. Someone else has got to do it. Someone else who has the time, who has the resources that I don't have with a, with a toddler running around and three businesses that I'm running at this stage of my life. I just, I just can't do it. Uh, who knows if it'll ever come along again, but, um, how did it feel once you said, once you passed, how did you feel? Uh, huge weight off because it was for a month I was doing it badly because I didn't have it. I I just didn't have it. I, I was, I knew I wasn't holding my own on the team of really smart people. Um, and I knew I needed to let it go to let them do it right. Um, so there was a weight off, but there was also a day or two where I was just kind of like, <sighs> like, Oh yeah. man, if only I could have, um, when, when the, when that project actually comes to fruition about a year from now, I'm, I'm probably going to feel it again that my name's not, attached to it um mm. with the people that are doing it but it, it, it just wasn't it was, wrong time wrong time wrong yeah. time yeah you know it's so yeah. and i had imagined that you're passionate about craft because you're a magician and a writer and a speaker and you just keep preparing yourself for the next thing that comes along but you know i'll tell you when i finished the first draft of productivities for robots it already took longer than i thought it would and then i read it and I was going to publish it. And then I said, it's just not good enough. It's just not what I want. 
And I know that if it's, I know that if it's not at the level that I know that it can be at, I won't feel comfortable talking about it. I won't feel comfortable going on podcasts and I won't feel comfortable going on the TEDx stage or doing any of the things that I want to do from this book. And I spent another six months with an editor going through it and just trying to get it back to that, to that place where I knew it could be. And so much advice in the self, um, self publishing world, or even just entrepreneurship in general about just failing fast and failing forward and just getting it out, shipping the work. I totally agree with all of that, but there is a certain line where you have to be the person that says like, no, this isn't living up to the vision that I had in my mind. And yes, I can't chase perfection, but I can get it to the level where at least I can say I'm at the point or I have the, the time to really do this the right way. And then to make that happen. And I'm just so glad that I waited. And, you know, you might find the same thing. It's like, you don't want to want to find yourself six months, but like, why did I say yes to this? <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm so with you on, on that, that there's a misconception about that whole, like, um, you know, done is better than perfect. You know, people say that all the time. And I agree a hundred percent agree. But what that saying isn't telling you is, put something into the world that's crap or that you don't feel good about. That's not what the saying is, right? People think, oh, done is better than perfect. This is this is mediocre. I'll just get it out there because done is better than perfect. It's like, no, no, no. It should be as it should be as good as I can produce it at this moment in time and then out. Right. Not perfect. Not not as good as you could write it six months from now, but as good as you can do at this moment in time and then let it go because it could always be better. Like the point of done is better than perfect is just ship the work, right? It doesn't count if it doesn't ship, right? Like right, it doesn't count if right. nobody reads it. it. It might be meaningful to you, but as a professional creative, it doesn't count if it's not in the world. So do it as good as you can do and then let it go and do the next one better. Um, but don't don't ship crap because like you said, because then you wouldn't even want to talk about it. You wouldn't want to yeah. promote it. You wouldn't want to, you know, um go on podcast or, you know, then, and then to what end did you, did you yeah, spend exactly. all that time for? <laughs> yeah. So, uh, before I ask you the last question, uh, Corey, where would you like people to find you? You prefer, where do you want people to look you up website, LinkedIn, where should they connect with you? Social apart from your TEDx, obviously. Oh man. Subs, uh, Substack is the best place to connect with me right now. I'm, I'm trying to do better at writing, essays, you know, that have to do with life and writing and, you know, whatever is kind of scratching at the walls of my brain at the time, but I enjoy doing that. You know, I'm on Instagram and Twitter and CoreyMcComb.com, but I reply to every email. So if you subscribe to my Substack and read some essays, you can write me with any questions, you know, productivities for robots is on Amazon there's the TED talk really. However, people want to get in touch. I'm very easy to get in touch with. So great. And I well, love we'll to have, hear from we'll people. We'll have all the links. Yeah. We'll have all the links in the show notes. You'll give me the link to the Substack, and um, we'll make sure the TEDx and your book and, and your LinkedIn and other places that people can find you. But um, it sounds like Substacks really, if they want to connect with you, um, sounds like one of the, the, the better places to do it. And then uh, they can obviously find your work on, um, on YouTube and, and on Amazon and all these other, yeah, other places. So absolutely. That's, that's great. So the, the last question I have for you, the, the people that listen to this podcast are mostly, uh, although not exclusively kind of 
young professionals, kind of 22 to 35. They're young professionals and they're they're trying to figure out how to create, you know, a sustainable career in an unpredictable world, an increasingly unpredictable world, as we know from the last two years. So what one piece of advice would you have to somebody like that to help them get their career going, get themselves moving in a direction um, that is sustainable and meaningful? Wow, sustainable and meaningful. I don't know about sustainable. I would, I mean, the, the best advice that I would give is the advice that I would give to myself, you know, looking back would be stack skills and meet good people. You know, it's really going to be your network and then the skill set that you have that's going to make the big difference. Um, and it's the cliche advice is cliche and popular for a reason, which is that you got to have an appetite for curiosity. You got to pull on the threads of what makes you curious and what makes you excited. You know, there's it's it's easy to get caught up in doing things just for the money. And I like making money too. I like doing business and, and making money. But if you can kind of find that overlap where even if it's not your passion, quote unquote, but you're working with good people, you're learning new things, you're developing skills, and then it's allowing you to pursue other things like in a balanced life. I think that's sustainable, you know, mm. uh, sustainable careers are ones that are going to allow you to step away from your career <laughs> and do other things in life. Yes. Um, yes. Be, be nice, be easy to work with. <laughs> that helps a lot. Yes. Right? That, Yes. No, but that seriously, I'm so glad you said that. I feel like not enough people are saying that anymore. It's 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 so underrated um, being easy to work with. I Oh, my God. I work with so many students, right? Colleges all over America. And I'm constantly telling them there's always going to be someone who's better at what you do than you are. In fact, they can find yes. them in seconds on their phone during your interview. Right. So there's always going to be somebody who's better. The people who get the jobs and keep the jobs and climb the ladder and get promotions and do all and get the good jobs, not just the crap ones, they're the people who people want to be around. They really are. Yes. They're the people who people like to be in their presence. Um, if you're easy to work with, you're probably going right to the top of anybody's short list just for being easy to work with. And then they'll evaluate your skills. <laughs> It's, you know, you got to be good. You got to be a certain level of, of good. You got to be able to yep. bring it with the skill set. But if you can shine in those intangible areas, then you're going to get a ton of referrals. You're going to be sustainable. And you're, it's just going to be, it's going to be more fun. And uh, to quote your TEDx talk, never confuse movement with meaning. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> did I say Corey, that? Corey, listen, right. <laughs> you did. You said that exactly. Uh, really, this has been such a pleasure. I really enjoyed the conversation around um, almost like the, the the business of creativity and uh, and and how to be a creative professional. Uh, it's it's a a topic we don't hear an, enough about and and related right with your your TEDx and your book. So. I uh, really appreciate you spending the time with me and uh, I'm sure we'll be able to stay in touch. It was a pleasure, Brian. Thank you so much. 